Morning, everyone. So we are continuing in our series, this short uh, look at Nehemiah uh, over the next four weeks. And Nehemiah is a book about, uh, it's a book about returning, about rebuilding, about restoring, and about revivaling God's people. And uh, last week we examined Nehemiah's prayer, which forms the opening of the book, and we saw that the starting point of any revival, the starting point of any restoration, the starting point of any redemption um, or rebuilding or revival begins with repentance. We have to repent if we ever hope to heal and restore and rebuild uh, the things in our lives or heal and restore and redeem the city around us, we need to begin with repentance. We have to repent and turn to God. And if you missed that message, I encourage you to listen to it on our website uh, or through the podcast. And we, last week as well, discovered a lot of similarities between Nehemiah's time and ours. God's people are essentially scattered at this time, um, and they have almost no cultural influence. And since they have been scattered and since they have been held captive by the cultures around them, uh, they have wandered from God. The, the fact that they are separated from each other and separated from God causes them to wander, and they're distracted by gods of fertility and gods of wealth and gods of pleasure. And we find ourselves in a similar time where God's people are scattered and distracted by gods of fertility and wealth and pleasure. And our temple may still be up. I mean, some people are still worshiping, but outside of the church in the city, out in the kingdom, out in the city, The walls are completely down. We basically have no impact in the marketplace of ideas anymore as a Christian culture in North America. And that's the reality that Nehemiah was facing. That's the reality that we face. And so Nehemiah repents and we repent. And we recognize that God is still at work, that God is faithful to redeem and restore his people. God still has work for us to do. God is still doing things. We're the ones that got scattered. We're the ones that got off of his agenda and off of his plan. And God has good works for us, but our first step is turning to him. But now in chapter 2, and we're not going to go through all the chapters of Nehemiah because it's only four weeks, uh, so I'm going to summarize the the last half or the last 90% of Nehemiah. Uh, But Nehemiah in chapter 2 is is critical because now we look at how we rebuild. How does God intend for us as his people to rebuild and restore what has been broken down and what has been lost? And we can see the need around us. We can see the ground that the church has given up. We can see the, the desperation that's in our culture and in people and in families. We can see the places where our culture and our communities and people need the good news of the gospel. They need the hope that we carry within us. They need the refreshing living water to restore life. But how do we build that back up? How do we rebuild those walls out in the community? How do we do it? And so we're looking today at Nehemiah chapters 2, and I'm also going to touch on chapter 3 as well and learn from God's Word. And I'm I'm just going to read chapter 2. It's a little bit longer than the first chapter, but I'm going to read it anyway because I think, I obviously think it's very important that we hear God's Word first, and then we will see how He speaks to us through His Holy Spirit. Let me just pray before I read His Word. Father God, we turn this morning into Your Word. We turn to Nehemiah, and You did great works through Nehemiah. And you have preserved for us, for our benefit, this retelling of your work amongst your people. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that it would have supernatural influence on us, that it would accomplish its purposes beyond our understanding as it transforms hearts and minds. 
and that as we look into it, your Holy Spirit would guide our interpretation of it so that we would know what you are speaking to us and uh, what you would have us do to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 2. And this is after Nehemiah has prayed, uh, asking for repentance and asking what God would have him do in the far-off capital of Susa, 1,500 kilometers away from Jerusalem and uh, where his heart is. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my... Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me and the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put onto my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and then I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up by the night, in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servants of Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they were jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. So here is Nehemiah now beginning the rebuilding work. After he repented and prayed and God gave him opportunity, Nehemiah begins this work of rebuilding. How does this rebuilding happen? So 
So it opens up, it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year. And so Nehemiah, as I mentioned last week, has been praying uh, since the month of Chislev, which is like, for us, kind of late November in the Jewish calendar. And then you have Tevet, then you have Shuvet, then you have Adar, and of course Nisan. I mean, you all knew that, right? So... Um, so those are the four months that Nehemiah has been praying. He's prayed through the end of, uh, of Kislev and then Tevet, Shivet, Adar, and now he's in Nisan, which is like March, okay? So this is early spring. He's prayed for four months, and he gets this opportunity to speak to the king because he notices that he's sad. And the king sees that Nehemiah has something on his heart. He literally says, you're not sick. There's something on your heart that's making you sad. And so Nehemiah has this burden on his heart that the king can even see. And what we learn in Nehemiah's response to the king is that what God has put on his heart is to rebuild what has been destroyed, what he heard from his brother about Jerusalem. God has placed in Nehemiah a desire to restore what has fallen into neglect. In verse 5, he says literally, so that I can rebuild. That's what's on my heart, king. I want to rebuild. And Nehemiah knows it's not God's will that the kingdom nor the people be destroyed, nor that they be neglected. Nehemiah knows that God's heart is for his people, and his heart is aligned with God's heart after this four months of prayer, and he wants to see the kingdom rebuilt and God's people restored. And so he's seen the plan of God that God has for his people, that he should be rebuilding what has been lost. And we don't have to look very far outside of the walls of our church to see that there's a lot of territory that the church has given up that there are a lot of places where our culture has fallen into neglect from a spiritual standpoint, where God wants us to recover the city, that we need to be rebuilding into our community, where we have been absent for far too long and there is a lot of work to be done. But we'll do more on that application later. But it's on Nehemiah's heart. It should be on our heart to see the city rebuilt and restored to where it was in the past. But then we see in verses 5 to 9 that God supplies what is needed. So God has a plan to rebuild, but God supplies what is needed. And we also see here in the text where God has a, where God has a plan and where God gives a command, He supplies the means. So we don't have to be afraid that God has a plan for us or that God has a command for us and then says, well, you guys just figure it out on your own. You know, you get it done. I've told you what to do. You know, run along and do it. No, when God has a plan and God gives a command, He supplies the means. And the means for rebuilding God's kingdom can even come from unexpected sources. In verse 5, Nehemiah is asking for favor of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, and he receives it. He receives the favor of this king who really has nothing to do with God. But Proverbs 21.1 says, In the Lord's hands the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. So the, the culture that's out there, the powers that are out there, the government that might be out there is a stream of water in God's hands. And he can channel the resources of whoever he wants, however he wants, to accomplish his purposes. And we don't want to assume that we know where and how God's help is going to come from. God is at work even using secular and unbelieving places and people of power for his own ends. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, we see how God works in this way. The disciples realize that even the hand of Herod and Pilate, the officials that ordered the death of Jesus, who thought they were acting in their own will and in their own plan of themselves, were simply acting according to God's will to bring about God's purposes. This is how God acts. 
He orders the world however he wants to order it in order to accomplish his purposes among his people. And so God can grant favor and he can provide for the needs of his people. He can provide for the needs of his plan no matter how big it is. Here's Nehemiah 1,500 miles away, right? Like Luke said this morning. You know, here's this one guy in a, in a minor role in a big palace and he's thinking, how do I get an entire city rebuilt? But God can move things and move people and provide resources in unbelievable ways. We don't have to worry about God providing. So God can grant favor. Psalm 89.11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth is yours also, the world and all it contains. Hebrews 2.10 says, Everything belongs to God and all things were created by His power. So if God wants to take some government money and use it for His kingdom, He can do that. And I expect God perhaps even particularly enjoys rerouting the resources of secular governments to serve His church and kingdom purposes. Right? God is pleased to take King Artaxerxes' forests and timbers and, and all his stuff and use it to rebuild his kingdom, the one that was destroyed by the, king, by the emperors that came before. So God used the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. He used Babylonians to judge the southern king of Judah. And now God is using the Persians to rebuild and restore his people. And so we see here, Nehemiah says, Well, king, if you don't mind, I mean, since you're asking... I could use some letters of safe passage. Maybe you could, you know, give me some letters with your seal on them so I can get by. And then also while you're writing those letters, could you write some letters to the keeper of your forest so I can get some timbers for the gates of the fortress and some timbers for the walls and might as well go for it. Some timbers for the house that I'm going to build while I'm there, right? You know, so I need the gates, I need the walls, and also I'm going to build myself a house, you know, because I'm going to be there for a while, so I got to build a house. So just give me, give me all the stuff I need for all of that, right? And it's also a long way and dangerous. So could you send me some of your army as well? Can I just take some of your army officers and I'll take them, right? And so Nehemiah just, you know, while, while the king's writing it out, he just keeps adding on, I think. But, you know, and so, but, but God blesses him and he gives him all of this stuff from the king. The king's like, yeah, sure. I mean, you're just my wine taster, but whatever, you know. <laughs> take a few million dollars worth of stuff. That's fine. You know, and because, and he says, and because the good hand of God was upon me, in verse 8, the king says, okay, you can have all of that, and you can have the time off work, right? It's like a six-week journey just to get there. And then six, he's like, he's gone three months just traveling, right? He's gonna, he's, he gets the time off work, and he gets all of this stuff from the king to go do this, because this is God's good favor. This is God's good hand. The good hand of God was upon him. And so God supplies for his plan. But then there's, there's this opposition to God's plan we just touch on in verse 10. Time skips ahead there in verse 9. As the writer now starts to refer to Nehemiah's travels in the past tense. He says, the king had sent with me. So now Nehemiah is talking in the, in the past tense. And he speaks to, about the local opposition in the present tense. In Nehemiah 2.10, he says, But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant of Herod, his, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And the main thing here, I do want to touch on the opposition, but it's interesting to note in this verse how there's a rephrasing of Nehemiah's mission. He told the king he wants to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, and that's true. Very practically, that's true. What he wants to do is go back and rebuild the gates and the walls of his of his city, of God's city. But when it's restated here in 2.10... He says his mission in verse 10 here is not the physical or practical mission of rebuilding the walls. It's rephrased in terms of its purpose. What is Nehemiah's actual purpose here? It is seeking the welfare of the people. Rebuilding the walls is just how the welfare is being met. But 
But Nehemiah's heart and his purpose and his mission is to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And I think it's important to recognize this. As we repent and as we as a church return to the Lord and as we align ourselves and set ourselves out on God's plan, we are always bearing in mind that our mission and our goal is not really to build more walls. It's not really to, to even build a great organization or even build a great ministry for its own sake. And we, you can get sidetracked that way and say, you know, you know, God wants us to build a community center or he wants us to build a bigger church or he wants us to, to have this organization or he wants us to run this ministry to a certain people. And it's like, yes, but the purpose is for the welfare of the people. It's not to build a great ministry. It's not to build a big building. It's not to, a, you know, create a, an organization for its own right. Those might be the means by which we seek the welfare of the people, but the mission and the purpose is the welfare of the people. So as long as what we're doing is serving the welfare of the city and of the people and of the community and of the family, that is fine. But if the building up of ministries or buildings or systems or organizations, you know, kind of overshadows that, then we've kind of lost our way. And so it's, it's important here to seek to see that Nehemiah understood why he was going to Jerusalem. It wasn't just to have an amazing building project and put up some big shiny walls that he could point at and say, look at this amazing wall I built. He was going for the welfare of the people. But we see also clearly in verse 10 that when God's people set out on a mission to bring God's compassion and when the welfare of the people that are lost is at stake, we will face opposition. Right? It's the very fact that Nehemiah wanted to help the people that there was opposition. And we will face the same thing. When we set our hearts on the good of others, the real good, the gospel good, replacing hope with despair, replacing deception with truth, you know, bringing healing to families and restoring people, when we go out into the world seeking the true welfare of the people, there will be opposition. The world will say, I know what you're up to. And we don't want any part of that. And that's part of the reason that we've gotten to where we are in the North American church. Because the world has put up its opposition, and the church, unfortunately, has retreated in the face of that opposition. When we set out to rebuild and restore the kingdom of God in the community of Halliburton, and as we seek to bring the good news of hope in the face of despair and healing where there's harm, and all of these things, we will be opposed. Nehemiah had his Sanballat and Tobiah, and we will have our opponents as well. We already have opponents. We see that in the world around us. We see that the message of hope that the church offers is being silenced over and over and over again, but that should not discourage us. God has supplied the passion and the heart that we have for our community, and God has supplied the means in which we can reach our community. He's doing it right now. And so we should not be discouraged because we face opposition. God has given favor. The good hand of God is upon us. And we're going to see Nehemiah go back to that statement again to encourage his people. And then as Nehemiah is actually rebuilding, how does he actually go about this rebuilding process? He has to assess the need in verse 12. In verses 13 to 15, Nehemiah actually assesses what is it that would help the people in this city? How can I restore their welfare? And so he goes in a half circle, kind of counterclockwise, if we're looking directly at what Nehemiah did. He kind of goes counterclockwise from below the Temple Mount all the way around. He goes from the Valley Gate, which is kind of like at 10 o'clock, and then he goes down to the Dung Gate, which is like at 6 o'clock, and then he goes around to the Fountain Gate, which is about at 3 o'clock. But there's no room there. He can't even get a horse through the rubble. It's so destroyed. So he turns back and he goes back around the walls to the valley gate and, and so returns and gets back in. Nehemiah is basically assessing what needs to be done and how it's going to get, how it's going to get done. 
And at this point, he really hasn't told anybody why he's there. He has, he has God's plan in mind, but he, he wants to assess the situation before he tells people what he's expecting of them. He has the care for the people in his heart, but he's not expressed it yet until he has a full picture of what's needed. It says in the text here, No one knew where I had gone or what I was doing. I, had told, I hadn't told them yet. But once he has a clear picture of how the people of God should act, He's the, sorry, once he has a clear picture of how the people of God can help, he steps up and he shows them what he's seen and the plan that God has given to him. And so basically he goes from assessing the need quickly to getting to work in verses 17 and 18. And this is really the key verse of the whole section. So I'm just going to read it again. Nehemiah 2, 17 to 18 is kind of the key of where the action starts. He says, Then I said to him, You see the troubles we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of, of my God that had been upon me for good. See, there it is again. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hand for the good work. And so Nehemiah basically says here, you guys can all see it too, right? Like I've come from far away, but you've been here. You, you've been living here amongst the ruins. You must be able to see the same thing that I can see. When I look out in the city, when I look out in the community, I see the rubble that is there. I see the destruction that is there. I see what used to, was once great is now a shadow of what it was before. I see the people suffering. I see the people that are under attack and under derision, and who are vulnerable. And I can see that just from looking, from my point of view. You guys have been living here. You must be able to see what I see. We, we're not any help to anybody. We can't even seem to help ourselves. And so then he issues the invitation. He says, come, come, let's rebuild so that the suffering can end. But this is not about my clever ideas or my plans or my desires. Nehemiah is quite clear. clear this is not about me. God is in this. He said, I told them of the hand of my God that's been good, that had been upon me for good. And so this is God's hand that is moving Nehemiah. This is God's hand that provided the materials. This is the favor of God that is upon Nehemiah to get favor from the king. This is God's hand that moved Nehemiah's heart to repent and return to Jerusalem. It's God's hand all along here who has been on Nehemiah to see this happen. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this, is, this has really nothing to do with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was just the guy that God decided, I'm going to use you. I have prepared, before you were even born, Nehemiah, I had prepared, this is how God works, I've prepared good works for you to do. I'm going to put this on your heart. I'm going to make you aware of this need. I'm going to show you what needs to be done. I'm going to supply what needs to happen or what you need to see that happen. I'm going to give you the motivation to go there and to raise up leaders to help you and to see this thing happen. It's God, 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 God. God's making all of this happen. It's not Nehemiah. And so he passes that on to the people. He says, it's the hand of my God that's been upon me for good for all of this to happen. This isn't just my idea. This is God's idea. Joseph says the same thing in his own circumstances in Genesis 50:20. Just another example of how God works. All the stuff that happens to Joseph and all the things that are going on in Joseph's life and how he's, you know, captured and thrown into slavery and then he's in jail and then, you know, he rises up in the in in the Pharaoh's uh, household and how he gets dominion over things and and rebuilds the granaries and stores the food for the famine. All the stuff that happens with Joseph. At the very end of it all, 
Joseph says, As for you, you meant things as evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph sees the same thing in the character of God. He says, this has been God working the whole time in my life. It's God that planned all these things. Why? Because God has a plan to save his people and to restore his people and to protect them, and he accomplished these things. In Romans 8.28, of course, we go to in the New Testament. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purposes. God is always working for the good of his people, to see people restored and redeemed and hope brought to them. So God is working for our good and for the good of his people, and he has good works for us to do in that. And so then the people respond rightly. Let's not miss that. Their response to Nehemiah is the right response. There's a lot of times in Israel's history when their response is not the right response. This is one of their good days, okay? This is a good day for the people of Israel because Nehemiah comes with this message from God and this supply from God and and this need that he shows that they have and they respond correctly. They say, let us rise up and build and strengthen their hands for the good work. And so people saw it. They saw through Nehemiah what God was doing and they joined him in it. And this has to be our response. When God shows us the need, after we go through 13 weeks of experiencing God, and we ask God to show us where he is working, and for us to be invited into where God is working, and he shows us that in our own life, or as a whole congregation, as a whole church, as a whole people, when God shows us that individually, and he shows us that corporately, we have to respond this way. We have to say, let us rise up and build. Let's join God in what he's doing. When we see what he's called us to do, we have to respond to it. They see the goodness of the work and they strengthen their hands to it. They get to it. Well, then let's just see quickly how they work. And Luke alluded to this, all of chapter 3. I'm not going to read all of chapter 3. Chapter 3 was put in the Bible for me to mispronounce people's names. Um, no, if you try to read through chapter 3, I dare you to do it out loud. Um, because it is just a long, long list of very difficult Jewish family names. And, uh, and so, but the point of chapter 3, if you read all the way through chapter 3, you'll just see it is a list of the people and the families that are working and how they were working and where they were working, right? And the point of chapter 3 is that we don't labor alone. That God intends for His work to be done side by side, all kinds of people with all kinds of skills, you find there a full list of all the work that took place, very detailed about what families and what people worked on what sections of the wall and how many people did what. And from that, you get to gather some very interesting observations. Chapter 3 actually isn't in there just so that we can stumble over Jewish names. It's actually in there for a good reason, as all of God's Scripture is. What we see in chapter 3 is that some people worked based on their family relationships. They worked together as a family. But then there were others who worked as individuals on the gates or on a specific need. And then some of the people were organized by their profession, professional association. Within their careers, they were working together with people who shared the same calling or the same career that they did, the same profession. Or their position in society, where, where God had placed them to serve in society, they worked together with those people. The priests worked, the merchants worked, the builders worked. Some worked where the construction had a really close interest to them, where it was right next to their own house. In other words, they were working on God's kingdom in an area that was directly related to them. And then other people just worked on other parts of the wall. And this is a useful illustration of sort of the unity and diversity 
which characterizes the work of the church. And, and if I was doing a, a longer series and we were just doing chapter 3, I could go to the unity of the body of Christ and we could go to the New Testament and, and you could go to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and we could talk about the body of Christ and how we are made up of many members and all of that stuff, which I know a lot of you faithful people who have been here hearing me preach all know and have been reading your Bible and you know. But that's what, this, that's what chapter 3 is about. It's about the unity in the diversity of God, how we're all working We're working with our family. We're working on things that are immediately related to us. We're working on things that are far from us that need to be done. We're working in our professional associations. We're working in the whatever part of society we happen to be placed in. That's what, that's what this list shows us is all, they, they give specifics about how they were working. And then it's not just how they worked, but it was about the, the contribution or the degree of contribution that God called different people to, to work together on the walls. Not everybody worked exactly equally. Right? This was not everybody gets, you know, exactly a 50 foot section and every person has to do their 50 foot, 50 foot section. There's a reality to our work in the church and to the ministry that God calls us to that we don't all contribute exactly the same. And so what we see here is that some people, um, rebuilt just what was right around their immediate area. Some people redid the gates. Some people did a whole stretch of wall. Some people even did a double portion. In verses 19 to 21, 24 to 27, and 30, you see some family names. After you've been reading, the family name comes up again because they also went and did another section after they finished their section. And so we all contribute to the work that God calls us to, to the degree that God calls us. But the other thing I'll just note here is that some did not participate at all. Right? In this amazing chapter full of participation from all of these people, you know, this, you know, feel good kind of rah rah chapter where all the people of God are working together and everybody's getting this thing done in 52 days. In verse 5, there's one little half of a sentence. It says, next to them, the Tekoites repaired. And the Tekoites actually ended up doing a double portion, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Wow, just that one little black mark in this great chapter. And so I thought about that, and I thought some people think they can just kind of sit quietly at the back, come in late, leave early, not participate in God's work, right? I can just imagine these nobles thinking, hey, all of this work's getting done. We're just going to hang out by the buffet table and, you know, it'll get done. But notice that for all of eternity, they are recorded in God's word (laughs) that they would not stoop to serve their Lord. So you think it's going unnoticed that you just kind of come and go and don't help? We know. (laughs) Right? More importantly, God knows. God knows, right? And so let one of these examples or the other encourage you, right? Either be inspired by the good example of those who worked where they could or did a double portion. If If God blessed them and they were able to do a double portion, then they did. And they didn't stinge and say, well, you know, I, I could build another section of the wall, but I'm not going to. You know, those slackers got to pick it up. No, they, if God has blessed you and you can do a double portion, then do a double portion, right? But if you can just work in the area where you can work, then, then just do that. So be motivated by that or be motivated by the shame of those who did nothing and are recorded forever as the people who did nothing. I, I prefer you be motivated by the first one, but if the second one works, okay, you know. Whatever works for you. God's word here records for us both examples. So I'm giving you both examples. But at the end of the day, we have to work together in unity of our diversity, each working on our share, or as we've been blessed, as I said, taking on a double share for those who are able to, to pick up for those who can't. This chapter 3 here in Nehemiah is the church working as intended. This is how God expects his people to respond to his mission. 
And so what do we take away from this? Well, God is at work, right? We turn our attention to assess the need, to unite in our diversity, and to strengthen our hands to the task. Are we going to respond the way God's people did here in Nehemiah chapter 2 and 3? Right? As we assess our city, as we consider our county, as we consider all the areas where the church has had to retreat, where we have given up ground to the culture around us. Right? Because it used to be, back in the good old days, and we always talk about back in the good old days, but it used to be that the church filled most of the needs of the community. It was the church that fed the poor. It was the church that took in widows and orphans. It was the church that provided work for those who needed work. It was the church that provided shelter for those who needed shelter. It was the church that comforted those who were afflicted. It was the church that did all those things. And as we have faced opposition, secular opposition, as we have faced our enemies and have retreated a little bit generation by generation, the world has stepped in and said, okay, we'll put the structures in place. We'll take care of the people that are hurting. We'll put people on welfare. We'll, we'll provide the community centers. We'll provide the boys and girls clubs. We'll take care of the, you know, we'll build the skate park or, or we'll take care of our, uh, the kids. We'll do the counseling. We'll do the, 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 the mental health coaching. We'll do all of this stuff. And that used to be the domain of the church. That, that used to all be gospel flavored. That used to all come with the hope of Jesus Christ baked into it. And now the church has taken over those positions where there is a need. The welfare of the people was what was on Nehemiah's heart. It was what was on God's heart. God was concerned for the welfare of the people. And as the church has given ground, the welfare of the people has been handed over to those who cannot really help in the end. Because the help they receive is at best a band-aid over the real need, the real hope that can fight the despair, which is Jesus Christ. People need the good news of the gospel. And actually, Halliburton's pretty good on a per capita basis, right? I mean, we have the four C's, which are doing good stuff. We have the food bank. We've got the pregnancy care center. You know, we've got camps like Shalom and Madiba, right? And, and many of those things in our community are championed by such a small group of people, right? It's such a small group of people who end up doing most of the stuff that we brag about. And we're not really involved as a church. We're not really penetrating the culture. Even in those Christian organizations, we're not really penetrating and participating to the level we should. But then you go beyond that, right? You go beyond that into the high school and onto, you know, the, the board of trustees or even the, the, the committee for parents or, or you go beyond that to search and you go beyond that to, uh, you know, just, just opportunities to serve in our community. And the church has barely any penetrating power to get out there and to reach people with the good news of the hope that we carry within us and to bring real healing and hope and restoration and rebuilding of the community that's out there. And so the challenge is that those middle two verses that I brought up, right? When Nehemiah says, this is the hand of my God has been good upon me. This is the good hand of my God. The people responded correctly and they said they they rose up and they strengthened their hand to the work. And so this is what we have to do. We have to assess the need that is out there and you all see it as much as I do. Right, So I'm kind of like Nehemiah. I see the need, and I know you all see it too. You see the need that's in our city. We all see the need that is out there. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to see where God is working and join him in that? How are we going to assess the need and then respond to it? Not to build some great building or to build some great ministry or to build some great new organization so that we can say, look at this amazing thing that we built, but so that we can actually bring welfare to people so that people actually get helped. That's why we're doing it. And so we as a people... 
And I, and I mean this on two levels. I mean this individually. Each of us individually need to look at our own heart and our own life and what God is calling you to do, to work on your section of the wall right by your family and your house. So I mean it at an individual level. What is God showing you and calling you to do? But then I mean it collectively. What are we all doing together? And it, and it starts right here on Sunday morning. This is part of what God is doing to bring hope to the world, to be salt and light to the world. It starts here. Right? And, and Sunday school, teaching our kids, and VBS in the summer, that's part of it. Right? And, and youth on Friday nights and shepherd's table, those ministries of our church, that's, that's the start of it. But where does it go beyond our walls? Where does it go past that? That's the challenge before us, and that's the challenge of Nehemiah. All of us individually, in our own ways, in a thousand little conversations, we can accomplish this individually, in conversations that we have and relationships that we build. There are lots of ways that God intends for you to work for the welfare of his people. But then also in a few really big ways, we have to determine as a church, how do we go beyond just the routine of Sunday mornings and Sunday school and VBS, which are all great things. Don't don't get me wrong. And they need help right now. But to even go beyond those into what is the impact that God wants Lakeside to have in the community around us, in this city? What is it that has been broken down and where people are vulnerable that we need to rebuild and restore to God's glory and for their welfare? Those are good questions. And God has been working already in some really unexpected ways in the last couple of weeks. I know he's been working in some unexpected ways in people's lives and in small groups because they've told me the stories, but God has been working in some unexpected ways in the greater direction of the church as well. And I'm excited about how we're going to be working together as we go forward in the weeks and months and years ahead to see how the good news of God's love is going to impact our community. We need as a church more than ever to rebuild our presence, the presence that the church has lost in our culture. So if Lakeside disappeared, Halliburton would mourn because they would have lost something special. If the church disappeared from the culture, people would notice. We have to rebuild that so that there is the need to feel the love of God and the impact of God on people's lives. We need more than ever to rebuild that presence that we've lost in the community and in the marketplace and in the public square. And that's the message of Nehemiah. Strengthen your hand to the task. God's good hand is upon us. He has work for us to do out there, and he will supply everything that we need from likely and unlikely sources. So let's be united in our diversity and bring the love of God to that city that's outside our walls. Let's pray.